Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Hello, everyone. It's Monday, May 31st, 2022, and I'd like to wish you a happy Memorial Day and specifically thank those whose families sacrificed and have lost loved ones in their service to our country. My name is Mark Sly. I serve as Lifeline's Vice President of International Ministries. And today we are continuing our study of the book of Genesis. And today we will be walking through chapter three of this first book of the Old Testament. Before we jump in, I'd like to simply acknowledge the work and influence that Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert have had on my life through their work and specifically through their book, When Helping Hurts. Today, I will not be quoting from their book per se. However, I know that over the course of many years in ministry settings, it has had a profound impact on the way that I have approached missions personally and professionally. And if you've read this incredible work, you will notice its influence on this Bible study as we walk through the impact of sin on mankind's relationship with God, with oneself, with others, and with creation. That being said, I invite you to read along with me as we begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 in Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in a garden? He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in a garden? Satan never comes at anything directly. He twists God's words in order to create an opening for interpretation, for doubt and compromise, not merely creating an issue with regard to God's directive, but ultimately we will see creating doubt about God himself. In chapter two, verse 16, God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice the serpent left that part out. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, before we look at the way that Satan has twisted the truth, let's take a second look at the gracious nature of God and what he told Adam and Eve. First, he intentionally created an environment that wasn't merely sustaining, but it was beautiful. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He graciously placed Adam in the garden, gave him a tour, and then gave him a companion to enjoy it with. If you have ever experienced anything that was truly wonderful, it is discouraging when you come back and you try to explain it, and even worse when you have no one to share it with. God, in his infinite wisdom, sees that man is not good alone, and so he gives man a companion to not only enjoy this with him, but to help him in. As Dr. Rick mentioned last week in chapter two, he's given us the directive to care, to steward, to have dominion over the rest of creation in a manner that exhibits God's character. Side note on that concept of helper for a moment, we often view a helper as a lesser role in our culture, don't we? We use terms like daddy's little helper. And I think the connotation is that a helper, a servant is of less value than the one whom they are helping. But let's think about that for just a moment. In this scenario, God knew that Adam needed another complimentary helping party in order to both accomplish his purpose, but also to fully enjoy it. Without Eve, Adam is not sufficient on his own. 
But with her, Adam is able to thrive relationally and vocationally, so to speak, and vice versa. The one helping is deeply valued because the other party is not able to do it on their own. Look at Christ. Unable to save ourselves, he came not to be served, but to serve, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, we find in Philippians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is sent to us as our helper. God forbid that we would ever view the third person in the Trinity as someone as less than because his role is helper. This is why we read in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is our helper. And without him, we are lost and we are condemned. And it is when we ignore, disconnect from, and abdicate our God-given roles as helpers that our life's trajectory heads toward destruction. All that to say, Adam and Eve's roles in their relationship are absolutely necessary and critical for one another. So what happens when this breaks down? Well, we're going to see that in verses two through six. Read with me there. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it like Moses hitting a rock. She's added to what the Lord actually said here, lest you die. Side note, Proverbs 19.10, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It would be more essential that we pay attention to exactly what God said and obey that rather than add our own nuances to it. And that is certainly the case here with Eve. It's certainly the case with Moses later in the Old Testament. And it is certainly the case in my life. When I try to prescript that which scripture does not I become legalistic. I become like the Pharisees. And then I often just find myself failing worse because I'm trying to follow something that God never intended for me to have to follow. In verse four, it says, but the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, moving God from the role of trusted creator and friend to now suspect withholder of good and truth. So in verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, I don't know about you, but in this moment and every time I read this in instances when people veered away from God's direction, I just want to scream out, no, don't do it. If there was ever a moment that was worth going back to in time in order to change, this is it. Go back, provide Eve with that sound advice from someone when she was all alone. But she wasn't alone, was she? And so it continues. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam was with her. And the directive to have dominion over creation was then flipped on its head. And the enticement of a serpent and the allure of a forbidden fruit, both items that they were to have dominion over, not be dominated by, was then allowed to have dominion over them. It did not overtake them. They were not victims here. No, they allowed themselves to be dominated, to be domineered by those things which were there for their stewardship and their care. In these first six verses, we've already quickly seen that the relationship between Adam and Eve, as well as their relationship with creation, has not simply fractured, it has shattered. 
Their roles have been abdicated. Their God-given authority over creation relinquished. Everything is falling apart like one of those giant domino structures that never seem to be fully completed before they fall apart. Now, I confess that oftentimes I look at sin and Adam and Eve's sin in particular, and I think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, it was a bite of fruit. Come on. Was it such a huge offense? I mean, the public's produce manager has seen me eat a grape to see if they were ripe, and he didn't even think twice. So why did Adam and Eve get kicked out? And even more, why and how did this create some monumental domino effect that led not only to this consequence, but to envy, strife, rage, murder, rape, and war? I mean, seriously, how did we go from peaceful serenity to, sorry, spoiler alert, murder in chapter four in a single bite? It is here that I want to say something to every one of you who is not simply the recipient of the brokenness of tragedies like divorce, a cancer diagnosis, someone else's rage, or the anxiety caused by these things, and so many other things that I could list. But we are also, every one of us, including me, perpetrators of these kinds of sinful acts. Like Adam and Eve, we are not merely victims, though we have certainly all been victimized by sin, but we too have been the guilty party. And when the choice was made to act in not only contrast to, but in opposition to God's design, it always shatters relationships. We see it here in the relationship Adam and Eve had with one another, and we see it in the relationship that they had with creation. And unfortunately, we will see it break even more in verses 7 through, well, Revelation 22, 21. To see what I mean, keep reading with me in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So already there is a greater separation between husband and wife here. There is shame. There is guilt. And watch as the dominoes continue to fall in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, there is a gap between not only one another and a brokenness with creation, but there's also separation from their creator. Just think about what has been lost. I mean, my heart breaks a little when I leave a vacation in the mountains or move from an imperfect home filled with just a few memories. But this couple, they've lost the experience of perfect relationship with one another, a perfect environment created exclusively for God's glory and their enjoyment, and then their relationship with the creator of the universe, who is personally available to them, that relationship was destroyed. And their attempt to avoid the consequence was, well, laughable. In verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I had commanded you not to eat? God rhetorically questioning Adam, questioning the one whom he had given the role of protector, not the one who took the first bite, but the one who watched and said, and who did nothing to stop it. And where did he find him? Hiding from the one who created everything, who created everything he was hiding. From. Like a toddler who believes that they're hiding because they put their hands over their eyes. And then they open up their hands and go, look, I'm back. I was vanished, but now I've appeared. And yet we look knowing that 
they never left the room. Well, it gets worse with Adam's response than just simply that. Just look at the next verse in verse 12. The man said, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Seriously, Adam, you're going to now blame Eve and God for your actions? Helping and serving have now become blame shifting and avoidance. And isn't that what we see every single day in our own world, in our own families, well, in my own life? When we oppose God's design, we shift blame. We villainize the other parties and we justify our actions, seeking agreement from others who have committed the same offenses so that we can feel better about the damage that has been done. But these external attempts on our part don't fix anything. The damage has been done. And like a plague, sin permeates and invades every space. Verse 13, it says, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Blame shifted again. And even reason seems to have left the building when these two in the garden, as they pose arguments to God as to why they could not withstand the temptation of a fruit in the midst of the perfect garden, nor resist the deception of a creature that they were given dominion over. And so the consequence of their action and the response of their creator continues in verse 14. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so the creatures that should have been in harmony are now at enmity. And it is an opposition, this opposition, now ordained by God, that there would be this natural separation as consequence of the collusion to partner against the order that God had created. And it wasn't just a consequence applied to the serpent. God turns to the woman and he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I love how John Piper addressed this passage in a resource on the Desiring God website. He says this, this is a description of the curse. It is a description of misery, not a model for marriage. This is the way it's going to be in history where sin has the upper hand. But what is really being said here? What is the nature of this ruined relationship after sin? And now you're going to see him make this correlation to a similar passage in chapter four and relate it to the meaning here in verse 16. Piper goes on to say, the key comes from recognizing the connection between the last words of this verse, Genesis 3.16, and the last words of Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Her God is warning Cain about his resentment and anger against Abel. In chapter 4, God tells him that sin is about to get the upper hand in his life. Notice at the end of verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Literally, you shall rule over it. The parallel here between Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7 is amazingly close. The words are virtually the same in Hebrew, but you can see this in English as well. In Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, your desire is for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In Genesis 4.7, God says to Cain, sin's desire is for you, and you shall rule over it. Now, the reason this is important, Piper goes on to say, 
is to see is that it shows us more clearly what is meant by desire. When Genesis 4-7 says that sin is crouching at the door of Cain's heart, like a lion, see Genesis 49-9, and that its desire is for him, it means that sin wants to overpower him. It wants to defeat him and subdue him and make him the slave of sin. But now when we go back to Genesis 3.16, we should probably see the same meaning in the sinful desire of woman. When it says you shall desire for your husband, it means that when sin has the upper hand in woman, she will desire to overpower, subdue, or exploit man. And when sin has the upper hand in man, he will respond in like manner and with his strength subdue her or rule over her. So you see, sin always puts the parties affected in opposition with one another. Sin is never neutral. It always brings with it harm, harm to their relationship with God, their relationship to creation, their relationship between one another. But I also want you to see that there's this fourth area of brokenness that we see demonstrated in this verse. And it is subtle, but so very critical to take notice of. Your desire shall be contrary. The Hebrew word there, El, means in motion against to your husband's wishes or desires. It, it connotates this idea of like a fish swimming up against stream. Eve's own internal desire is now in opposition to God's created order. Her desire will be to oppose that which God had set up. And in turn, Adam's response will be just as sinful and broken. Sin destroys not only the external relationships, but one's own internal ability to be inclined toward healthy relationships. I like the way that C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, likened mankind to a fleet of ships. He said, you can get the idea plain if you think of us as a fleet of ships sailing in formation. The voyage will be a success only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get in one another's way. And secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has her engines in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If the ship keeps on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears or rudder are out of order, they will not be able to avoid those collisions. See, our internal steering mechanism, our sin nature is bent towards selfishness and the destruction of the very relationships we so desperately need. We too, every one of us is prone, is bent toward, and is generally responding with aggravation and retribution because of our own brokenness when we encounter somebody that aggravates us, rather than the empathetic compassion, realizing that we are all actually in the same dilemma. And now God, not to leave anyone out, turns to Adam. And to Adam, he said in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall not eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for your dust. And to dust, you now shall return. See, everything is shattered. Relationships. God's design for the order of his creation, the internal nature of man and woman, all of it is lost. This wasn't merely a fruit that had been eaten. It was an upending of all that God had meticulously and perfectly created and put in place. Adam and Eve and all creation stands condemned in a moment, suddenly unable to repair itself 
already in a downward spiral that would bring selfishness, hatred, and murder, not only in a single family, but throughout all of history. But it is not without hope. Look with me in verses 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. See how that's ironically contrasted here in what's happened and taken place. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Don't miss the irony here. Eve, the mother of all living, is now in part, along with Adam, responsible for the death of the animals, now sacrificed to cover their sin. And though we do not have time to cover the topic of blood sacrifice being required for a broken covenant, take note that the sacrifice matched magnitude of the brokenness. An animal wasn't simply put to death because its skin made a more fashionable option. Rather, a life was given as it was required for the breaking of a divine law. Again, the created that Adam and Eve were intended to care for and steward is now being sacrificed for their offenses. Imagine this not as some random animal in the wild. No, these were creatures that they had grown to know that Adam had personally named each and every one of them more like the pet that you've grown to and were intended to care for and love. Do you see how the whole thing is now flipped upside down? And yet hope remains because God is a God of grace. And so he says in verse 22, behold, the man has become like one of us. See the triune nature of our father, even here in Genesis chapter three, father, son, Holy Spirit, he has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, forever separated at enmity with himself, creation, God and others. God now creates boundary for his protection in the eternal provision, not as a means of punishment, but one of grace. So therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away everyone to guard the way to the tree of life. So we get it. We have the blessing of a perspective that comes along thousands of years later, but more importantly, we are on the other side of God's ultimate redemptive grace, the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of the empathy that we are drawn to recognize and respond to in a child from a traumatic background, for instance. Respond, we are told, not to their behavior, but to the root of their lack of attachment or their inability to self-regulate. Brothers and sisters, may I dare say that this isn't a unique approach from someone like Karen Purvis or TCU or a genius clinician. No, this is the response of an almighty God condescending to love, serve, and then sacrifice himself on behalf of those who cannot just regulate, but we are actually spiritually dead in our sin with a disposition to destroy everything around us. So brothers and sisters, may we first today recognize the weight and the destruction of sin, our own sin. Like a cancer, it eats us from the inside out, destroying and eliminating the relationship that we have with God, with others, and with his created design. First, we must recognize that this simply isn't a matter of an a fruit that was forbidden, that was then eaten. It was an upending. It was a flipping upside down of everything that God had intended. And second, can I encourage you? Let's acknowledge the grace of God in providing the way, not just a way, 
but the only way of redemptive restoration for all of the broken relationships we found ourselves in and the proclivity that we all have to literally destroy everything good in our lives. Let's worship him as the ultimate compassionate caregiver who lovingly, patiently, but authoritatively calls us to holiness and then grants us his Holy Spirit to attain it. Brothers and sisters, we cannot ever forget John 14, 6. For Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. Jesus, God's redemptive means of grace, is not one of many options. It isn't a way to heaven. It is the only way, providing that you surrender with faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. There is no other way. And might I also say, how sadistic a God would be to provide through the life of his son, through his beating and murder, provide one of just several ways that you could reach heaven. No, God provided the only means of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection and our faith and trust in him. We are able to have eternal life and there is no other way. That isn't something that we shy away from. That isn't something that we are labeled as uncaring for. That is something that if we're truly loving, we announce every single day, both through our words and our actions. And so let us finally extend that grace that God has demonstrated towards us to one another, to those that we care about, those that we vehemently disagree with not in a compromising fashion, but in a compassionate one, knowing that when any individual pursues sin and brokenness, they are chasing after their own destruction. So yes, we defend the unborn, but we are also brokenhearted for the abortion-minded. We grieve the loss of a life in war, but we also pray for the change of heart in the one who took the life. And we advocate for justice for the vulnerable, and yet we still demonstrate mercy toward those who offend us. Brothers and sisters, in him, we must live, move, and have our being, Acts 17, 28. So we, the broken, navigating our own way through broken, attempting to bring some semblance of his redemptive work to bear, we must bring our needs to him. We must lean on him. He is our only means of help. And so now I would invite you to intercede with me in prayer for those that we are going to lift up this week. So this week, we pray specifically for our efforts, for the ministry, for what God is doing in the country of Poland. Monday, could we invite you to pray for families in process? Would you pray that God would bring to conclusion their adoption process and pray that God would provide more Polish families who would be called to adopt. On Wednesday, would you join us in praying for the central government and the ministry there who has authority over adoption? Would you pray for them and their social policy in Poland and that we would continue to see hearts move toward an openness for adoption to take place. Pray for clear communication and responses from the ministry when there are questions raised. Pray for local courts and judges who have 
incredible power and oversight over the entire process that they would be inclined towards these children having forever homes. Pray for the Catholic Adoption Center, that they would understand the heart of Lifeline, that we are thankful for them and in reaching out to even some of our representatives on the ground, that we could maybe even partner more when it comes to those waiting for adoption in Poland and especially those Ukrainian refugees who are now in Poland. Pray for the children in Poland on Thursday. Pray that the Lord would make himself very evident to them, especially for those who are older or maybe a part of a larger sibling group. Maybe they have severe special needs. Would you pray with us that God would make himself known to them and that they would come to know him as Lord and Savior? And on Friday, we would invite you to pray for our team. Pray for our team, Jana and Jackie and Brianna and Brooke and Timmy Ann as they continue to work in Poland despite the difficulties over the last few years. Pray for the Lord to open more doors for possible unadopted opportunities, that we would be able to work alongside of ministries inside of Poland to care for children who will never be adopted. And would you also pray for Sasha? He is our representative and lives in Poland and pray for his wisdom and discernment and favor in conversations with government officials. Would you pray for his strength as he even and his family care for displaced refugees from Ukraine in light of the war? So let's pray together for these needs. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are deeply involved and care for the people of Poland. God, more so than we could ever be aware of. God, you created each individual there with perfect intention. Not simply just wanting them to live and die, but God, you've created them for the purpose of knowing you, of glorifying you, and having life in you. So God, we pray that your gospel would go forth in Poland in such a way that it would impact families, that they would be drawn toward adoption, and that those who are waiting to be adopted would know you as Lord and Savior. God, we pray for all of those involved, from government officials to our representatives on the ground to our team here in the United States, that God, we would reflect your character well, that there would be favor in communication with one another, and that ultimately, God, your mission, your ministry would go forth in Poland in such a way that, God, more would come to know you as Lord and Savior, that, God, your glory and your renown would reach further throughout the lives and the families and the children of Poland. And, God, may we continue to work in such a way that demonstrates that your grace has infected our lives, that God be upended the flipping of your created order because of sin. God does not have the last word, but rather your grace, your redemptive work, and God, most of all, your son, Jesus Christ, has the last word. God, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we ask that you would empower all of our efforts, those listening and those here at Lifeline, that you would empower our efforts to make you known, to love you well, and to lead others to know you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. 
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.